just get started and we will trust that others will just continue to join us as uh, as we go along. All right. We'll open our Bibles at this time to the Gospel of John, chapter 3. If you, if you checked your email this afternoon, you will hopefully have received the Bible study notes for tonight. We are returning to our topic for 2020. We took a, a little detour through the book of Revelation. We finished that last week, and of course that helps very much to inform us on Jesus, and uh, we certainly learned about his present ministry and as well as his future ministry. But uh, we're going to finish this year, 2020, in the Gospel of John, uh, and we're going to look at what Jesus had to say about himself. We've looked at Old Testament prophecies, we've looked at the uh, writings of the Apostle Paul, we've looked at the Gospels, we've looked at a lot of different perspectives on Jesus and, uh, and his nature, his character, his, his divinity, his humanity, but uh, we want to conclude with what Jesus himself had to say concerning his identity. You will hear it argued from time to time among the, the liberal uh, theologians, among the, uh, those who question the historic, historical nature of the Christian faith, they will tell you things or say things like, well, Jesus never claimed to be God, or Jesus never claimed to be the Messiah. Jesus never said he was you know, the, the, the uh, Son of God, things like that. And of course, their agenda in saying those type of things is, I think, pretty clear, pretty obvious. But the problem with those statements is they're absolutely wrong. Jesus did talk about himself. He talked about himself uh, in both personal one-on-one uh, -on -one conversations, like the conversation with Nicodemus, the conversation with the woman at the well. He talked with his disciples quite often and uh, about his nature, about his character. He even talked with those who challenged him, his enemies, about who he was and who he is. And no other place in the Bible, no other book of the Bible, uh, carries more of Jesus' own conversations and his own teachings concerning himself than the Gospel of John. Jesus' comments are, uh, in his own words, answering the question of who is Jesus. And we're going to start tonight in John chapter 3. You should know this passage of Scripture pretty uh, uh, well. It's, it's you know, one of the best-known uh, stories in the Gospel of John, uh, one of the most quoted verses, if not the most quoted verse, at least maybe in the New Testament, is John 3.16. I think we've all learned that one by heart. So we want to sit here and start here and try to talk about his conversation with the man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. If you have your Bible open, you can just kind of follow along. I won't, I won't read 
every scripture, but I will refer to several of them as we go. And as always, your comments, your questions are uh, very much desired and very much appreciated. Uh, we want this to be an interactive hour. I want to hear from you. And if there's anything that I say or someone else says that's not clear, the last thing we want you to do is to leave this, uh, to leave this conversation uh, confused or not sure of what exactly it was we were talking about. So please feel free to, uh, to jump in. All right, so you know the context. You know that Nicodemus, one of the members of the Sanhedrin, a ruling council of, of the Jews that uh, was headquartered there in Jerusalem, uh, that this man came to Jesus, according to John, by night. He came to him by night. We don't know if he did so because he was trying to be uh, incognito, or it could just simply be that Jesus was so uh, surrounded by crowds during the day that perhaps this is the only time Nicodemus could get some one-on-one -on -one time with him. But this conversation, in Jesus' own words, he, uh, he identifies with the coming of the kingdom of God and how one to come into the kingdom of God must go through him. And so in the beginning, uh, Nicodemus confirms, or at least uh, uh, whether it's flattery, whether it's his own sincere beliefs. And by the way, Nicodemus is considered a genuine follower of Jesus. He, he was with Joseph of Arimathea uh, when, uh, when they took Jesus' body off the cross and took it and buried it in the tomb. So I think Nicodemus was a very sincere man. He was a very... Uh, very much uh, wanted to believe and did believe in Jesus. But he comes to him with a, a statement. It could be understood as a question or a statement. He says, we know that you come from God because the things you're doing are proof that God is with you. Now, you'll see, you'll see this in the Gospels from time to time. Jesus Instead of responding to the statement or instead of responding to the question that is actually made, instead seems to be answering a different question. Uh, you see it quite often in the conversations Jesus has. He does not feel the need at this point to uh, argue or dispute or confirm with Nicodemus whether or not he comes from God because he knows that Nicodemus uh, real question is the real purpose of his visit seems to be something along the lines of uh, the questions that the other disciples asked him after his resurrection. Are you, are you now going to restore the kingdom of God to Israel? Are you, uh, in, in the sense of the expectation of the Jews of that time, are you our, our new David? Are you our new Moses? Are you going to, to lead us? into, uh, of course, they would have understood that to mean lead us in the sense of uh, get rid of Rome, get rid of Caesar, get rid of these other uh, uh, occupying forces and make Israel uh, a free nation and a powerful nation in the world. And so Jesus' response 
of course, is one of the most uh, uh, memorized and one of the most preached on and one of the most taught uh, of all the things that Jesus said. And that is that if Nicodemus wants to see the kingdom of God, and we've spent a good three months talking about Revelation and the coming of the kingdom of God, if he really wants to see the kingdom of God come, he must be born again. So we know this part, and we'll go through this part relatively quickly unless someone has a comment or question. But Jesus is talking here uh, that the ex, or, or is letting Nicodemus know that his expectations of what the kingdom of God is do not align with the reality of the kingdom of God. It's not about uh, sitting upon the throne of, of Jerusalem or the throne of Rome or the, the White House of, of Washington, D.C. It's about ruling in the hearts, ruling in the spirits of, of, of God's people. And so this born-again dilemma is one that Nicodemus struggles with. He does not understand how this thing can be. And so Jesus gives him that answer that we have uh, repeated so many times. You must be born again. You must be born of the water and of the Spirit. And this is uh, the way into the kingdom of God. This is how you become uh, aware of and enter into the kingdom of God. And so that back and forth leads to the conversation that, uh, that I want to talk about here in verses uh, 10 through uh, 18. But do I do I have a comment or question so far? Um, I just want to say that I um, Nicodemus right now. I it, it, I'm just trying to see what 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 what, what was his point? What was what, what, what did he want to ask Jesus a question or? Uh, <laughs> yeah, he made a statement, but I'm just wondering if that was what he really wanted to say to Jesus. But that was his really issue. Well, I don't think Jesus gave him uh, the chance to get to, get to the point. Um, I think Nicodemus's intentions, as I understand it from the, from the conversation that Jesus has with him, mm-hmm. is, is he going to take earthly power? Is he now going to declare himself the ruler of Israel and... Uh, you know, Nicodemus's position uh, on the Sanhedrin Council, you know, would be similar to uh, what we have here in the U.S., like a, a, a senator or uh, someone who sits in the Congress. That's kind of the same type of position that Nicodemus would have had in uh, in Jerusalem. The Romans gave the Jews uh, a limited uh, authority for self-government over their over their own people, over the Jews. That's how you know, they, could, they, they, they couldn't touch, of course, they couldn't touch Roman citizens. They couldn't touch anybody else, but they had some authority over their own people. So Nicodemus is coming to Jesus as a man of authority to see if Jesus is going to take power and begin to implement, begin to bring into reality the kingdom of God. And, and Jesus is reply tells him he doesn't have the right perception or the right understanding 
of what the kingdom of God is. And the reason he doesn't understand that the kingdom of God is, of course, you know, we know the expectation for the Jews, the Messiah they were looking for was going to be something closer to uh, a great uh, war uh, lord or war general, uh, uh, someone who could inspire the people to fight back and overthrow their oppressors. And we know that Jesus was teaching something very different, submission and loving your enemies and doing good and, uh, to those. And, and so uh, you can understand Nicodemus' dilemma. But when Jesus begins to talk about being born again, Nicodemus really struggles to understand what that means. Uh, I, I wonder today, I mean, do, we, do, you think, do you think the modern church, the modern Christian, has a good understanding of what it means to be born again? So some of us do. <laughs> okay. But but the, what does the, it mean the, to be born again? What does it mean to be born again? Oh, you're asking me? I'm asking anyone who wants to respond. Okay, now I know when when we came into the world, we we came in with the seed of Adam. We 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 were spiritually dead, as separated from God. To be born again is to is to confess and repent and turn. And once you confess, re, re, turn, repent and turn, new spiritual life is is you are regenerated and you spirit you've been given new spiritual life wherein you stand justified before God as as if you had never sinned in in as much as you had sinned but. The, the righteousness of Christ is now imputed to you. My understanding of the born again experience that in 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 a, in a, in a few words is, is is what it is. Now you have new spiritual life in Christ Jesus, where now you don't have a propensity to sin anymore. You want to do those things which are right, spiritually right. Now that you've been born again, brought out of darkness into light. Amen. Amen. Uh, uh, that's, that's well put. Anyone else want to add to that? Sad to say, right. but the most, right. of, most of the people in Christianity today thinks water baptism is the new birth. And you see this, they keep their baptistries full. I've talked to ministers, they say, uh, leave it full so we just baptize and that's the concept of, 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 of a great part of humanity all right mm -hmm. amen I, 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 you know, I think water baptism is, is certainly very important I think it's a, a necessary step for anyone who wants to be a follower of, of Jesus but it, it's not the new birth it's a, maybe a symbol or an outward sign but uh, you know, Jesus mentions water he does he mentions water here, in, I think it's in verse uh, uh, 5. He, one is born of water and the Spirit. But I think we should understand that in the sense of uh, the two parties or the two parts of the salvation experience. There's a part that man, that humanity must, must play, and there's a part that only God can play. And I think the brother put it, put it well earlier, 
our responsibility is to repent and to believe. That's, that's, to me, that's what water baptism symbolizes. It symbolizes repentance. It symbolizes faith, our willingness to confess our sinful nature, confess our need for a Savior, and also confess our faith in Christ as that Savior. I think that's critical. Uh, but the the born again experience that that would only be that would only be half that would only be part of it because the born again part has to be done by God and that's what the Spirit does I think the brother mentioned uh, regeneration and that's uh, I know that's one of those theological words that we don't really uh, unpack too 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 often but you know our repentance and our faith. Um, is reciprocated and responded to in grace by God. For by grace are you saved through faith that God sends the Holy Spirit to renew us, to regenerate us, to give us a new heart, a new mind, a, a new uh, creation, a new, a new life. And so uh, you need both. You know, and I think what we've done, I think, uh, after you mentioned one error, is we've put it all on human beings. You know, just pray this sinner's prayer or just go into the water and be baptized or just start coming to church or, or just, you know, sign off on, on uh, that you believe in this statement of faith or, or join the church and you're saved. That's not, that's not being born again. By the same token, the other error is to believe that humans have no responsibility, that we do nothing, that God simply saves whoever he wants whenever he wants, and, and we're totally passive, we're completely passive in the, in the process. It is not a passive experience. We must repent and believe and if we repent and believe, God forgives and God regenerates. So you must be born of the water and of the Spirit. All right, so after the revelation, now this, is, now this is all a setup. Remember, we're talking about Jesus and his reference to himself in his own words. And uh, in his own words... He responds to the next question, the third question in verse 9, where Nicodemus says, how can these things be? How is all this possible? How can we be born again? How can God regenerate? How can all of this uh, take place? And this is what opens the door for Jesus to identify himself as the catalyst for this born-again experience. Uh, you know, we use the phrase born again sometimes a little casually. Sometimes we refer, use it to refer to non-spiritual experiences or non-Christian experiences. But make no mistake about it. Christ and Christ alone is the catalyst for being born again. Uh, let me take an opportunity right now to simply ask, if you're not asking a question or making a comment, if you could just keep your phone on mute to reduce the, the background 
uh, noise so I can be heard clearly and so that those who want to speak can be heard clearly. So uh, when it's time, I'll ask a question. You can unmute yourself and ask the question, but if you're not speaking, please keep the phones on mute. I appreciate that. All right, so Jesus marvels that Nicodemus does not understand what he's talking about, and he recognizes the limitations of Nicodemus's uh, knowledge of these things. And so he claims, Jesus here, talking about himself, begins to speak to Nicodemus of the one who must come from heaven. One must come from heaven. The Son of Man come from heaven because no one can ascend up. No one can understand the things of this, of this kingdom of God, this heavenly kingdom, this kingdom of heaven, unless they are of already the kingdom of heaven. And of course, the only one who's of the kingdom of heaven at this time on earth was Jesus Christ. He came down from heaven. And he uses that analogy, and he goes even one step further. He takes Nicodemus back to the story of Moses and the children of Israel in the wilderness, if you remember this story in the book of Numbers, the people had complained and the people had, had uh, spoken against God, against Moses, and God had allowed these fiery serpents, these nefesh, to come into the camp, and people were being bitten, people were dying. And I think that's a very good description of the condition of the world, not only in Nicodemus's time, but also today, if you'll agree with that. The, the, the serpents are all among us, the serpents of sin and self, uh, the demonic powers, and they are destroying lives. They're destroying people. And if something is not done, you know, the whole camp would have perished. And so Moses goes to God, and God tells Moses to lift up to make a bronze uh, cast or a bronze uh, representation of those serpents that were sent as judgment and to lift it up. And he says, whoever looks upon it will be healed and will be saved. And Jesus uses that analogy. He uses that very scene to tell Nicodemus that the one who comes from heaven must be lifted up as that emblem of salvation, that emblem of healing, that emblem of deliverance, that only when he is lifted up will people understand uh, who he truly is, his true nature, and, that he, and, and his true power to save them. I, 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 this is one of the earliest references in the gospel to the necessity of the cross. You know, the cross is not something that gets added on after Jesus fails in, uh, in converting or in, in winning the people over. This was the purpose. He left the kingdom of heaven to come down to show us the way. And the way is through the cross. With the Son be lifted up, He will draw all men unto Him. So, here Jesus is very clearly talking about himself. 
as the Son of Man who has come down from heaven. He's declaring that his true origin, his true home is the heavenly kingdom and that he has come to show and to save. And that takes us, of course, through that ever so critical and ever so beloved 16th verse, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Here Jesus is saying that he has come as the ambassador of the heavenly kingdom, God having sent prophets, having sent preachers, having sent teachers, now sends his own son to win the world, to show the world the way to enter into the kingdom of God. Christ's death on the cross is the door to the kingdom of God. And here Jesus references to himself as God's only begotten Son. This is the, this is the key to, to just what we know is absolutely critical. This is Jesus was not just another prophet or another preacher or another teacher. He is the Son of God. And he identifies himself here as the Son of God. And he identifies that he is, through his death on the cross, the way to enter into the kingdom of heaven. <clears throat> Do we have any uh, comments or, or questions on this one? No, if, 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 I, if I were to say anything, is Nicodemus, being, being, being a ruler of the Jews, knew, I, I, I want to believe that he knew a lot about God, but he did not know him. In just the same way that Thomas said to Jesus, show us the Father, and it sufficed us. Knew a lot about God, but did not know who he was until Jesus revealed the Father in himself by what he did and what he said. Amen. Amen to that. You can't really know God without knowing Jesus. It's, you know, we have many religions in the world that all claim to worship God, all claim to believe in God, all claim to know God. But if they don't know Jesus, this is, this is the, um, the way that Jesus concludes this conversation with Nicodemus. We tend to stop usually at around verse 16 or verse 17. We tend to, to uh, end it on a very positive note. But if you continue to read, you begin to understand that Jesus was not simply talking about the way of salvation, but he was talking about the fact that even when he is lifted up, some will not believe. They will not accept him as the only 
begotten Son of God. What a stumbling block. This, uh, we've talked about it several times, but, you know, Jesus is the rock of offense. He is the stumbling stone. He is the stone that the builders rejected. They can, the world can accept everything about him except that he is the only begotten Son of God. And by rejecting this, they, they reveal that they prefer their darkness. I, you know, we, we wonder sometimes. You know, I, I know some people, we, we fought a little bit, or we, I wrestled a little bit in my spirit with some of those verses that we read in Revelation over the past few uh, weeks about the people uh, not repenting, about the people continuing to blaspheme. How is that even possible? And here Jesus himself says that there are those who love darkness rather than the light. They would, they would rather live in darkness, live in sin, live in their evil. Isn't that, isn't that something? Uh, I was talking to somebody. It's been a while now, but I, I was talking to them, and they're living a certain lifestyle. And I said, you know, I said, if... if, if and they asked me if I was, you know, basically the question we always get, which is, can I, you know, can I do, can I live like this and, and, and go to heaven? And my response would be, and my response to them at the time was, do you even want to go to heaven? If you knew what heaven was, if you know what the kingdom of God is, and the righteousness, the light, the love, the, 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 the things of God that will dominate and will be overwhelming. Is that a place, considering how you are living and the way you are living your life, would you even want to be there? And they looked at me kind of strangely and they thought for a minute and they kind of shook their head and they said, well, I, I guess not. I, I guess if I have to stop doing what I'm doing and, and being who I'm being with, I, I guess I'd, I'd just, I would rather not go. And I said, well, that's yeah, that's what it boils down to. It's not a question of can you. Anyone who repents, anyone who, who, who believes, who turns to God, you know, whosoever calls them in the world, they'll be saved. But people don't want to be saved, not if it means giving up the things that they believe define them, the things that they believe uh, um, are part of who they are. And I, I just find that so sad. And here Jesus is talking with Nicodemus. And, and I, like I said, I think Nicodemus came around. I think he became a genuine follower of Christ. But it's very clear that there are people who, even when Christ is lifted up and even when his nature is fully manifested, still choose to reject him and to reject the kingdom that he represents. So here Jesus says, he is the Savior of this world. It's not a politician. It's not a, a judge. It's not, it's not a, a, a form or system of, of economics or government. It's Jesus. He and he alone is the Savior. And anyone who wants to come to the kingdom of God has to look upon him and accept him as their Lord. All right, any other comments on John chapter 3? I'm sorry, but uh, 
I'm here, Pastor. Go ahead. I strongly believe also it's a similar situation in, uh, in our society today. Everybody, I wouldn't say everybody, but most people, they believe in God and they feel, they feel they're feeling as though uh, the way they live, uh, you know, doing good things and doing good works and just the basic, that is enough to give them a passport to go to heaven. However, they still do not believe that they have to go through the cross, through Jesus. And that's one of the um, mistakes and also confusion that's actually going on in today's society, as you said. You're right. You're absolutely right. The, um, the doctrine of, uh, of self-righteousness uh, and, and, and how it manifests in so many different ways is very dominant. Uh, we've, we've completely abandoned the whole concept of even needing a Savior. Um, you know, one of the conversations that almost is very difficult, you know, when you went, I don't know how many of you spend, I hope all of you, but, you know, there was a time where when you were witnessing to the lost, you would lead with some version of a question that, you know, sounded something like, are you saved? Have you been born again? Are you, are you, are you going to uh, the kingdom of God? And, and you ask somebody today if they're saved, and they really, I think they, I, I really don't, don't think they would even understand that question. It's no wonder that the world has, or this generation of the world has rejected Christ as Savior on the grounds that they do not need saving. And that, you know, we, we as the church, we have to find a way to sort of reconstruct uh, our witness. Uh, you know, we have to do a, you know, you have to do a lot more groundwork now. You have to build a, a foundation of why people even need to be saved before you can even get them into the conversation of Jesus as a Savior. But John 3.17 says that, uh, that the world through him might be saved. And it's that through him. Here Jesus is very clearly saying, you cannot be saved unless you are saved through me. And so you're, well, you're, 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 you're right there, sister. Um, also, also, they're, they're, they're in some denomination, in some denomination, there, there is the thought that un, unless you're baptized, you won't be saved and you can't be saved and you are not saved. So a, a lot of folks are equating salvation with baptism. But then, you know, like you, like you rightly said, we must know the scriptures if we are going to talk to somebody about Jesus. Because in, I think in Mark, Mark 3.13, it says that Jesus called 12 that they might be with him. And being with him is the opportunity he took to teach and to tell them about himself and we must know 
him and about him in order to, I believe, to effectively and winsomely communicate to those that need to know him. Because even even these mega churches, they 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 don't talk about knowing Jesus anymore or repentance. It, it, it's a feel-good thing. So a, a lot of folks are, are confused about what it is, especially when they hear the truth. Yeah. Yeah, um, you know, I, yeah, I don't want to turn this class into a, uh, a catechism on water baptism, but I think we, you know, again, the two errors... On the one side, water baptism is the only way to be saved. The other error, you don't need to be baptized to be saved. I would, again, I would challenge both of those. I would say, if you do not repent and believe, then water baptism has no efficacy at all. However, I will say, if you have repented and believe, you will be baptized, because that is, that is the evidence of your faith. That is the, the step you take to publicly declare yourself as a follower of Jesus Christ. And, and I just can't imagine a scenario. I know people talk about the thief on the cross, and certainly if you are dying and there's no time to be baptized, uh, I, I don't think it, you need to worry about it. Although I would suggest maybe the, uh, the thunderstorm that appeared at that very hour may have been his baptism. But, uh, uh, you know, we, we, we can't... Um, we can't, let me say it this way. There is no justification for claiming to be a Christian but refusing to be baptized in water. There's no justification for that. If you claim to be a Christian, if you claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ, and you've been one for more than, you know, three days, then absolutely you need to find a river, find a pool, find a water hose, find an ocean, find, find something, and declare publicly your faith in Christ. And if, if you're not willing to do that, then your faith is not worth, uh, you know, it's not worth what, what you think it is. But as far as it, but, but, communicating any sort of uh, power beyond that, no, we, we draw the line at it as a symbol. Go ahead, brother. But but that that uh, the spirit that said to Philip, go down this way. And he went down that way and found the the, the eunuch, the Ethiopian eunuch. And the eunuch, after Philip expressed the scripture to him, he said, "Here is water. What hindered me from being baptized?" That same spirit that made you alive in Christ, that same spirit will move in you and put that urge in you for you to want to be baptized. There, there, you know, there's no two ways about it. Amen. Amen to that. Anyone who's truly born again is going to want to be obedient to the example of Christ, to the command of Christ, and to the practice of the apostles and the practice of the church. Jesus was baptized. All the apostles were baptized. 
Auto the apostles baptized those that they converted, so on and so on and so forth. All right, let's, um, are there any other questions or comments on John chapter 3 before we, we move to John chapter 4? Anything here about what Jesus has to say about himself that uh, catches your attention? You know, Pastor, I, I just wanted to just add to the water baptism argument here is that the scripture declares that I think Jesus said to us, if you love me, keep my commandments. And I am thinking that um, when a person comes to Christ and the Holy Spirit speaks to that heart and he begins to look at the word of God, he would want to um, be in obedience to what the word of God says. I mean, I've pastored churches and I've had people who confess what they're saved, but I had a hard time convincing them that um, from the word of God that water baptism is essential to, um, to, 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 to making the, the world knows that they have accepted Christ. It's not just their testament, it's an outward show of, of um, your, your obedience to the word of God. So this is just my, my argument on water baptism. Mm-hmm. If you love me, keep my commandments. I knew when I got saved at that little tender age, I wanted so much to get baptized. But my mother said I was too young, so she kind of refused. But after a while, she had to give in because she noticed that my desire and my lifestyle as a little boy had really changed towards Christ. Amen. So you, you want to get baptized with water baptism if you, if you come to Christ and you believe and accept his word. That's just my argument, sir. Amen. The same scripture says, if you're ashamed of me before men, I'll be ashamed of you before my Father in heaven. We, we cannot, and, you know, we, we don't, I, I think there's some Pentecostals over the years or, or some in the movement over the years that have kind of seen water baptism as a, uh, a carryover from the Catholic or, you know, the the high church era. And, you know, they, they, they want a more, I, I guess they see it as more of a, a ritual and a formality than anything else. And, and that's, it's, it's such a shame because it is such a powerful, I, I, some of the most powerful moves of God I've ever seen in my life have been in, in baptism uh, situations. I, I, I call to mind, uh, you know, maybe the, 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 I don't know, the, my most pastoral moment, you know, I, I guess there's only a couple pastors on the call, but you'll understand what I mean, where uh, two, uh, two young men give their lives to Christ, two young boys, really, uh, uh, and their, their grandfather was going to take them back to their parents out of state, and it was their last night at church. I remember, right, it might have even been a Wednesday night, or it is probably a Sunday night. The last night at church, and he came to me in desperation. He said, can, can we get them baptized before I take them home? And, uh, you know, we didn't have the pool filled. I said, well, it's going to take, it's gonna take uh, you know, a couple of hours to fill the pool. But I says, uh, I says if you're willing and they're willing, if you will go into the kitchen and just bring me a pitcher of water. And, uh, and so they did, and they brought me a pitcher of water. 
And right there in the parking lot, right outside those doors where most of you park, uh, and, 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 and 9 o'clock at night, I, I poured water over them. I baptized them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And I can just tell you, it was one of the most moving and powerful and spiritually rich uh, moments in my ministry and, and the tears in, in, in the gentleman's eyes and the young boys. There's, there's no excuse. If you love Jesus and you're his follower, get baptized. Get baptized in water. It will, it will be a testimony not just to the church, not just to the people that watch it, but it will be a testimony in your own mind and heart. You will not have any cause to doubt your sincerity of your faith. Or if you ever have cause to doubt the sincerity of your faith, you'll be able to go back to that monument, that altar, that stone that you placed there and said, on this day, at this time, I declared my faith and allegiance to Jesus Christ through the sacrament of water baptism. And it's a beautiful thing. And no, it doesn't guarantee you'll never fall. It doesn't guarantee you'll always be saved. You still have a free will. But I'm telling you, that water baptism is powerful. And so also is the regenerative work of the Holy Spirit. If he changes you, my friend, you've been changed. If he gives you a new heart and a new mind, you have, you have truly been born again. And it's so important that we not separate these two experiences. Our part is to repent and believe. How do we demonstrate that repentance? How do we demonstrate our belief? We get baptized. What's God's part? What does he do in response when we repent and believe? He forgives, he cleanses, and he regenerates and renews us and justifies us and sanctifies us. Both must happen together. They're not two separate things. They're two things that happen simultaneously. If, if we don't have both elements, you can't have either element. If you believe that you can be regenerated without repenting, regenerated even without believing, as some of our more hyper-Calvinist brothers believe, then you, you've totally taken the human element out of it. And you've just made us basically uh, machines that God programs however he chooses. And if you make water baptism everything and you deny the need for the indwelling and infilling of the Holy Spirit, you make salvation a human effort instead of a relationship covenant with God. So I didn't think we would get stuck on this tonight. Uh, I didn't think this was going to take up our time, but you know what? That's the reason we have these calls, so that you can uh, participate and take the classes where you want them to go. So clearly we struck a nerve, and so I'll open it up to anyone else who uh, who hasn't had a chance yet to speak or ask their question, if you would like to comment on John chapter 3, uh, you can do so now. Can I share a, a thought um, about that you mentioned about using the, the water pitcher? Even in this yes. COVID situation, um, a minister friend of mine gave me 
and told me that there's a person who got saved, and this person wanted to get baptized. And in order to baptize the person, what he told that person to do is to, in their home, they should fill their um, their bathtub with water, right? And he would give the, um, the commandment, and while he's doing it, that person's supposed to just dip themselves on and come up. So, so you know, there's different, they, you know, there, there's, it just goes to prove that when a person repents and comes to Jesus, they want to do what is right. So in order to fulfill this, they had to do the baptism in the, in the bathtub at home because the, the service was being Zoom and this person got saved, wanted to be baptized, and the pastor had no Amen. other way out but to do it this way. Amen. Thank God. That's wonderful. Zoom baptism. You know, I, I, didn't, I, I guess that's, that's got to be the 2020, uh, um, uh, you know, miracle that uh, uh, we have this technology. Even when we can't physically baptize people, we can, we can get on the Zoom and we can broadcast their, their, uh, their baptism. What, what a beautiful thing. That's, that's amazing. I, I tell you, I know when I was a young minister, uh, you know, there was always that debate, you know, front first, back first, all the way in, halfway in, you know, sprinkle, dip, back. <laughs> you know, I, we, all have our, we all have our thoughts on that, but truly, the method is the least important aspect of the experience. I'm not going to say it's of no importance, but you know, whether it's a picture of water in a parking lot, a bathtub, a water hose, uh, you know, go out in a, in, a, in a nice spring shower, it's the willingness to obey, and it's the confession of that faith and that just desire to say, I'm with Jesus. I'm following him. And I promise you, whether it's sprinkled, whether it's uh, immersed, God is, uh, I think God is, is faithful to honor it and respond. And the response is so critical. We cannot save ourselves. Christ Amen. must save us. Amen. He must Amen. save us. But he saves us in response to our desire to be saved. Our desire Amen. to be saved must be there. He won't save us against our will. But if we stand with the sinful man at the, at the bottom of the stairs and say, beat our chest and say, be merciful to me, God, because I'm a sinner, he hears that, he answers that, and he sends his spirit, and thank God he does, to make us new creatures in Christ. Anyone else want to uh, add anything? Now, Pastor, there's a, uh, and I don't know how this is going to fit into it, but what about the, the uh, how do you reconcile the Pelagian, Pelagian thought with regards to the born-again experience? Well, for those of you that, that don't know, Pelagius was a teacher around the time that St. Augustine was uh, teaching and preaching, so we're talking about, 300 or so A.D. in that neighborhood, and he was teaching against the doctrine of original sin. He was basically teaching that human beings were born uh, with, with, not with sinful natures, 
uh, and that humans could choose to do good, choose to do to live righteously, and in, and in fact, if they did so, they would not need Christ. They would not need a Savior. And of course, uh, we would utterly and completely reject Pelagianism. We know that the sinful nature is uh, is present in our life from the moment of our conception. In sin, we are conceived. In iniquity, we are born. Um, you don't have to be around too many babies to recognize immediately that that, that powerful nature of selfishness is, you, know, you try to take away a baby's rattle, you try to you pull their plate of food away before they're done with it, uh, you know, there, there's no wrath like a, like a two-year-old. Uh, it's there. It's present. Uh, we need a Savior. So uh, I don't agree with Pelagius. I don't think he was anywhere close. I, his view of man was too optimistic. Yeah, you know, I, I, but, but it's present in a lot of churches. It's present even outside the church. You know, I, I heard one of the candidates in the debate a couple of weeks ago say that, yeah, he believes that people are good. People are basically good. And I, I know how he meant that, but um, we're not. Given a choice, take away the consequences of the choice, let the choice operate in a vacuum. Someone who is not born again will choose uh, to please themselves before they will anything or anyone else. And that's human nature. But you know, we dwell too much, I think, sometimes on, I don't want to call it the negative, but I just want to talk, you know, if we're going to talk about this, let's talk about this in the most positive way. I will testify I hope everyone on this call and everyone who listens to this will testify. The power of God to save us from ourselves is infinite. It is the most powerful, you know, and no one, I'll be the first one to raise my hand, no one needed a Savior more than James LaDonna Aldrich. I was mean and rotten and selfish and stubborn uh, my wife might still argue that point from time to time, but I was, you know, I, I, I will be the first one to tell to confess with Paul, chief of sinners, in me, in my flesh, no good thing dwelt. But when God got a hold of me, when the saving grace of God, the holy power of the Holy Spirit, he did not just forgive me. I just didn't feel the weight of sin lift. He changed my heart. He changed my mind. He changed the way I thought, the way he changed my priorities. He changed everything. I am thoroughly saved inside and out. And I'm not perfect. I'll never, you'll never hear me up here saying, yeah, I've got it all. I, I, I make mistakes. I fall short. I, I have sins of omission, things I should do that I didn't do or haven't done. But I can tell you right now, I am saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, by the power of God, by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And it is the single defining characteristic of my entire life. And that is 
a testimony to the power of God and to the truth. You know, it'd be very easy to prove what Jesus says here about himself a lie. It'd be very easy to prove it. You could prove that he's lying when he says that he has come to save simply by putting it to the test. But I promise you, I promise you, it's not a lie. He saves. Jesus saves. He saves wholly. He saves completely. He saves utterly. He saves thoroughly. And uh, there's nothing like the power of God in salvation to, um, to even compare it to. There's nothing to compare it to. Be born again is the single most important and most powerful spiritual experience you can have. It's more powerful than being baptized in the Holy Ghost. It's more powerful than being healed. It's more powerful than being a gift of prophecy. It's more pow- and, and it's the thing we seem to regard as the least. It's the thing we seem to take the most for granted. But who could, who could do it but Jesus? Who could save a sinner? Who could truly save a sinner? If we put all of the wealth of, of, of Donald Trump, of, of Warren Buffett, of Bill Gates, if we put all of, the wealth, all of the power of all of the scientists, we took all of these doctors and scientists around the world that are working on a cure for the coronavirus, and we said, your budget is unlimited. We will give you ever how many trillions of dollars that you need. You simply have to come up with a way to save sinners. And you gave them a million years to do it. They couldn't do it. If you went to the greatest military minds in the world and said, it designed all of these weapons and uh, uh, incredible power, and you said, we want you to take all of that power and reverse it and use it to save one sinner, they couldn't do it. Church, I'm telling you, I know I'm preaching, but let me just go with this and we'll be done. Salvation through Christ is the greatest, most powerful, most miraculous event that can possibly, maybe even next to creation. I don't know, creation is pretty important. You can't save what doesn't exist, so maybe creation takes precedence. But after creation, redemption, regeneration, that is the most incredible thing and we treat it so mundanely and casually and we just look at it as okay well you know I walk up to the altar I pray this little sinner's prayer no big deal my God if we don't really appreciate this gift if we don't really appreciate born again no wonder the church is where it's at today and no wonder uh, the world has the upper hand on us because I, I don't even know how many preachers in pulpits today, and I'm getting way afield here. I'm way off topic. But I don't even know. Pre- I, I, I'm not even sure how many preachers still even believe that people can be saved or that people even need to be saved. I, I, I listen to a lot of different preachers over, over, the, over, the, over, the, over, the, over the times, and I'll tell you, I don't hear hardly anyone. I mean, Billy Graham's gone. Um, Ravi Zacharias is gone. Uh, I guess Bonky's still running around, but I, I don't, you know, I, I, I kind of hot and cold with him. I mean, who is out there telling the world about the Savior? 
Who was out there preaching this gospel of regeneration? You know, we can't expect. I'll just go back to this and I'll be done. You know, this conversation that I had with this person I mentioned earlier, what difference does it really make? We get so worked up about all of these issues, cultural, sexual, political, we get so worked up. But what difference does it actually make? The reason why a person is left out of the kingdom of God. A thief is as good as a liar. A liar is as good as a murderer. A murderer is as good as sexually immoral in terms of it doesn't matter. If you're not saved, if you're not born again, there's really no difference in terms of eternity. I know in the context of day-to-day life, you know, we, we, there's a lot of different ways to apply that. But in the context of eternity, you know, missing the kingdom of God is about, or, or not or making the kingdom of God, it's about being born again. It's about being saved. And if we got people saved, if we truly believe John 3.16, if we truly believe John 3.17, and this is what we preach and this is what we witness, you'd be amazed about how getting people saved and getting them truly born again fixes all those other problems with them that we're trying to fix without going through Jesus. End of sermon, end of class. Uh, I'll open up for one final comment, and then, and then we'll wrap it up for tonight. Who wants to, uh, to address John 3? All right. I preached you into submission. Praise God. <laughs> Sometimes you back me up, preachers. Sometimes you've got to preach them into submission. Amen. Amen. Oh, well, we didn't, we didn't get this far as I hoped, so we'll come back to John chapter 4 in two weeks. God bless you, and we will talk with you soon. Thank you. This has been a production of the Lighthouse Church of God. Thank you for listening. We hope you have been blessed. You are welcome to join us for service every Sunday at 10.30 a.m. For more information or to support our ministry, visit our website at www.lhcogfl.org. Or if you're in the Broward County area, we would love for you to visit our church located at 1890 Southwest 31st Avenue, Fort Lauderdale, Florida, 33312. God bless you. Until next time, this is the Lighthouse Church of God, lighting the way through the storms of life.